Xi Jinping firmly believes that America is in decline. Right. He firmly believes this. They watch the chaos. They watch riots in America. I mean, this, this is they watch American domestic politics. You should know they are fomenting this here at home too. Welcome back to the Kevin Roberts Show. This week, we're talking about all the trouble in the world, and in particular, the greatest source of it, the Chinese Communist Party. Even in the midst of war in Europe and inflation and the border crisis here at home, there's no topic more important to America's national interest these days than China. And no one better to hear from than former CIA Director and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. After talking to Secretary Pompeo, I'll wrap up today's show with Heritage's own Brent Sadler, whose final assignment with the Navy was with the China branch at the Pentagon. The Heritage Foundation has been raising alarms about the misdeeds of the Chinese Communist Party for decades, from its threats against our allies and militaristic posturing, to intellectual property theft, forced abortions, and ethnic cleansing. The CCP's threat to each American's safety and prosperity increases by the day. Is it finally time for the United States to do something about it? And if so, how? And with whom? If this is your first time watching The Kevin Roberts Show, welcome. For those of you returning, I'm grateful you've subscribed. Each week, we're diving into issues that matter to you with voices from across the conservative movement. And we're also equipping freedom lovers across the country with the tools you need to go on offense against the left. Since Russia launched its war against Ukraine, we've all witnessed the best and worst mankind has to offer. From President Zelensky's courage to Ukrainian soldiers' defense of their homeland, to the Ukrainian people's resolve not to yield to tyranny and terror, we're watching world historical heroism play out in real time. Ukraine deserves all Americans' respect, our prayers, and not least, as much military and economic assistance as we can get them. Vladimir Putin has shown his true colors, too. He's a thug, a tyrant, and like all organized crime bosses, not as smart as he thinks he is. He and his corrupt regime deserve the world's scorn. But, and this is what we're going to be talking about today, not the United States' undivided attention. The Putin regime may be an enemy, but his husk of the former Soviet Union is not really a rival. His fantasy of resurrecting a Russian empire is just that. Some speculate that his goal is to regain the global relevance that disappeared with the Soviet Union. But in truth, Russia can't start a new Cold War because China already did. And that conflict is not one the United States may or may not get drawn into. We're already in it, whether we like it or not, and our only choices are to join the fight or lose. I want to be really clear, both with Europe and with China, and as we'll discuss, Taiwan, it is not in the interest of the United States to send troops abroad. We've done that, and the threat has to be very real for that to happen. What you're going to hear is that the United States can take steps now to avoid that eventuality. But the key point is, too, China today is a more dangerous adversary than the Soviets ever were. The Chinese Communist Party enjoys strategic advantages Moscow never did, with greater capacity to project power around the world. The promised benefits from the United States' engagement with China haven't materialized. The allure of Chinese profits has cost too many American workers their jobs and too many American corporate leaders their souls. The CCP is not a partner. It's an enemy. And the greatest threat to freedom, self-governance, and the American Republic today. Saying so is not an escalation or a provocation, but a realization of America's position in the world today. 
That's why we're so fortunate to have former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo with us today. There's no one better to talk about China, its ambitions, and how the United States can lead the West to another victory against communist totalitarianism in the 21st century. We're going to jump to my conversation with him from Heritage's B.C. Lee Lecture. But before we do so, please remember to subscribe to The Kevin Roberts Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to give the show a five-star rating while you're at it. Your ratings and reviews help us reach even more people with solutions for the biggest issues facing America. Stay with us. I'll be right back with Mike Pompeo. Big tech is out of control. If they can silence the sitting president, what can they do to you? The Heritage Foundation has been on the front lines fighting for free speech. We spotlight big tech censorship, demand reform, and help you fight for your rights. Heritage was the first conservative organization to reject big tech's money because this is too important. We won't be silenced. I want to start with a broad question, even though I know we're going to talk into some detail about the Chinese Communist Party, Taiwan, the situation in Ukraine. The broad question is about America and what I and my colleagues here at Heritage see as a lack of leadership. I say that respectfully for the president and and, in his office and as a man, but it seems as if for the first time in my lifetime, and I'm a really young guy, but for the first time in my lifetime, that America's reactive, that we're waiting for other countries to take the lead. In fact, President Biden has gotten really close to saying that explicitly. Is that a fair assessment, A, and then B, what do we do to change it? You know, I try to avoid politics when I'm at this stuff. And, you know, as someone who was elected in 2010 as a part of the big Tea Party class, that's hard. (laughs) But it's important. Mm -hmm. But I think observationally it is accurate. I think think observationally you can see that we were on our back foot. We'd seen this coming for months and um, didn't do what has been America's traditional role, is to get everyone, the like-minded nations together, those of us who believe the basic things about human dignity, the basic things about sovereignty, the basic ideas of religious freedom, and say, we're all going to go mount the campaign to protect these people who are prepared to do this. And so not only were we reactive to Vladimir Putin, that is, I think he has successfully, so far, been able to drive the timelines and the storyline. That that may be about to end, but so far I think that's true. And then President Biden has somehow suggested that he wants to be behind some other countries in acting. Mm -hmm. That That's a mistake in my view. I mean this with no arrogance. The the world counts on the United States. There's no other nation of size and scale, and in my judgment as well, uh, with with the moral capacity to lead on matters just like we're seeing confronting in the Russia-Ukrainian fights today. Uh, We ought to be doing that. Your your question about how to do it, I'm heartened. I've actually seen Congress push the president, frankly, on a pretty bipartisan basis in many cases to do more. Um, I, you know, I applauded the president today, the announcement of $800 million. I wish we'd uh, had that to the Ukrainians in December or January, but we're here. And so uh, the things we can do is be clear about what matters, be clear about what America's interests are, because that is important for American political leadership, right. and then make the case to the world about why this is such an important challenge. Well, thanks for that response. So. Pivoting from that, although it's, it's very related, and it is the United States' view toward Taiwan, I want to pick up on an offer you made in the middle of your speech, which is with me to explain that day, 100, that day 994 out of your, your thousand days 
What changed regarding your decision on that day, and what has changed since then? Yeah, uh, nothing changed. I, I made my, I, I had formed my judgment. i would be very careful, I'll get State Department lawyers riled up. I had formed my judgment early on, but pushing this through the State Department bureaucracy was a nightmare, a complete nightmare. Um, that comes as a shock to us yeah, at the Heritage um, Foundation, by the way. <laughs> Look, I, I, think, I think that memo came up originally, you, you wouldn't know, this is, this is the arcane, but uh, you know, everybody and their brother gets to uh, give me their judgment on the memo to uh, human rights, but everybody. Uh, didn't, that didn't happen at the machine shop? Ah, uh, uh, you know, I wanted to know what my engineers thought. Yeah, <laughs> okay, fair enough. I'll stop and Plane had to fly. Uh, <laughs> I think it was, I think there were, it was two to 43 or something like that. And, uh, and I, I, wanted the, I wanted it to last. Mm-hmm. And so I was, the 2 and 43 was unsurprising, but I wanted to go work the, work the process a little bit and try and explain to people why. So I brought groups up. I brought them up in groups of six or eight and said, here's what I'm thinking. Tell me why you're thinking what you're thinking so that it would post-date me. So I had the power to make the decision at that moment, but I spent uh, nine or ten months just work, work and work and working to try and get that memo to come up with a few more supportive voices on it. I, I was pretty unsuccessful at that. Uh, the administration has mostly kept the policy. They've pulled it back in uh, practice in some degree, mm-hmm. but, uh, but the rules haven't changed, and that's a good thing. We ought, to, we ought to be willing to meet with them on State Department property and take a picture. <laughs> One <laughs> would think. so basic. One would think. Yes. So dialing out a little more broadly and thinking about Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, you did touch on very forcefully, very, very articulately, the conclusions that both of them have drawn about America right now. And again, like you, I have no desire to pick on the President of the United States. We're just calling a spade a spade. We're a policy shop. But what, what optimism, I guess, can you give this audience, whether they're in person or online, that in spite of what we all know to be true, which is that those two leaders in particular have drawn a conclusion about American power, which is not ideal, that maybe there is, as you and I were talking backstage, the beginning of something to change there, that Americans can say, okay, we're not necessarily going to intervene all over the world, but we're at least going to be a little more forceful than we've been in the first year of President Biden's presidency. Yeah, there's two pieces to this. One is the one you described, which is uh, uh, their their perception that we won't use American power in important ways in a timely fashion. The second one is the, the bigger challenge, which is that Xi Jinping firmly believes that America is in decline. Right. He, he believes it. Um, I think Putin believed that in elements the United States was in decline as well. They watch the chaos. They watch riots in America. I mean, this, this is they watch American domestic politics. You should know they are fomenting this here at home too. We haven't talked about. I, I, I didn't speak about it today. They're inside the gates. China's working the room, not very far from where you all are sitting right now. Um, they have an enormous, enormous united front operation in every significant country in the world, including right here in Washington, D.C. And so not only do they believe in decline, they are trying to make sure that they're right about their core belief. So what do you do? In the end, um, this is about uh, leaders stepping up and making the case to the American people about why these things matter. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would always tell my European counterparts who, you know, they were pretty exhausted from us telling them they needed to pay 2% of their GDP for defense. And I would tell them in private, you, most of them were elected officials, unlike the Secretary of State. Most of my counterparts were, par- were members of Parliament, right, in parliamentary mm-hmm. systems in Europe. I would tell them, go to your home district. Explain why it matters. Well, it's very hard for us to, to spend money on defense. I'm like, yeah, you think the people of Kansas just think, you know, right? We had to go make the case for why this mattered. This is the kind of thing Americans can lead on. I offered to every one of them to go to their home district and stand alongside them on a podium in their home district 
and make the case for European expenditures for security for the world. Uh, he received exactly zero acceptances. Uh, but this is what America has to do as well. We have to make the case not to send 2050, 100,000 American soldiers, right. but that says the tools that we have, um, American energy, uh, every, every significant Western country in the world wants to be a technology partner with the United States, right? They want to work alongside great companies like Samsung and TSMC, right? Countries with the rule of law and property rights and contracts, all, all the basics. Uh, we've got to go make the case to the American people why this matters. Then we can stand with our colleagues around the world and make the case uh, to their people as well. And when we do that, she and Putin will end up being wrong. I'm convinced of that. You talked about optimism. I, I'm long America. We're, we're, we're going we're gonna to pull through this thing. Uh, we always do. There's no reason to believe that, but only when leaders are prepared to explain why these things actually matter and why, why someone who's sitting in New Mexico or New Hampshire or Nevada should give a darn about what's going on in Ukraine. We, we know that these things matter. I think they can see it more clearly today than they could even six or eight, ten weeks ago. That's failed American leadership from six or eight or ten weeks ago. That's exactly right. And, and I'm glad to hear you say or explain foreign policy on what I like to call the sidewalk level. And we've lamented here at Heritage for the last few weeks that we seem to be in this period of American political history when foreign policy has become so partisan. I mean, I, I know when I was cutting my teeth in politics, the same would have been true for you based on previous conversations we've had, that it was neither a Democrat nor a Republican approach to foreign policy. It was one that put America first. We would quibble over some of the, the little differences, but hopefully what we're seeing is a real change there. The exception to that, though, seems to be the reality that as you and I and the audience sit here right now, the Biden administration is negotiating a nuclear deal with Iran. What in the world do we do about that? Yeah. I, uh, uh, I often get asked, can you explain someone who has a different view, can you explain their logic? I'm trying. And I can usually, I can usually make the case, um, and we simply have different priorities or different, uh, we, we value something different. This one is beyond my ken. Mm -hmm. I, I cannot explain, uh, if, you, if you believe the core premise, which is that we have a great security partner in the state of Israel, with enormously deep economic ties, so we should want to be friends with the lone democracy in the Middle East. Right. Uh, if you accept that the largest state sponsor terror in the world are the Iranians, and they are determined to build a nuclear weapon, and if they do, there's no reason to think that there won't be a half a dozen other Gulf states that think that, boy, that'd be, if they have one, I want one too. If you accept those three facts, it is unexplainable that you would, I understand today, the United Kingdom, they got, a, uh, they got one of their own back, someone who'd been held hostage. I'm, I, I prayed for her. We worked to get her home. But they gave half a billion dollars to the Iranian regime to do that, if I have the facts right. That half a billion dollars will kill someone in the West. You can write it down. I couldn't tell you if it's in Iraq, an American soldier. I couldn't tell you if it is a, a, a British soldier working someplace in Syria. I couldn't, I couldn't pick it. I couldn't tell you if it would be some civilian sitting in Denver, Colorado. I, I don't know where. That money will flow precisely, only that it will be used for malign activity. And we ought not reward hostage-taking, and we ought not be sitting at the table. With, think about the, what this table looks like today. This table looks like we're not in the room, but just this is an imaginary table. There is an Iranian on that side, and the Russian on this side, and the Chinese guy on that side. I got nothing. I, I literally, you, you can't articulate an outcome there that is in the best interest of the United States of America. I understand there's some chance they're going to force them to take this 60% enriched uranium and ship it off to Russia. <laughs> I mean, okay. Um, 
I, it's, it's unexplainable to me to think that that's a solution that's going to prevent the Iranians from in the crunch moment, when, you, when you're trying to figure out who's who and who has friends, think about who the Iranians will turn to. There's only really three places they could turn. They could turn to the North Koreans. They've done that before in a nuclear file. They could turn to the Chinese Communist Party. They could turn to the Russians. And we're going to deliver highly enriched uranium, take it out of Iran, move it to Russia, and call it good. Mm -hmm. um, this is very dangerous. Uh, it will force, uh, unfortunately, it will force uh, Prime Minister Bennett into a very, very difficult decision-making process, not knowing whether his friend and partner of the United States will actually help him make sure that he, he doesn't have to live with what Israel can, which is a nuclear-armed Iran. It's hard to believe, and I really appreciate your candor. I'll just sort of riff off your metaphor about a table. And let's say that we've got a table that represents South America and another table that represents Africa. In the last few months, Heritage has hosted two heads of state, one from South America, uh, Latin America, one from Africa. And one of the themes, among others, that each of those gentlemen brought to Heritage was America is not helping with the China threat in these continents. Give us a sense, based on your expertise, I'm not necessarily looking for optimism as much as reality, knowing that maybe by just calling a spade a spade, you do that, Heritage does that, experts in the room, many in the diplomatic corps understand this, that we can get to a point where we're confronting the threat from the Chinese Communist Party in those two comments. Yeah. Uh, I'm unsurprised that you heard that from them. We, we saw this during our, our time in, the, in office. Uh, every, single, uh, every single one of my ambassadors knew that they had three priorities. The first priority was the United States of America. The second priority was the country to which they were credentialed. And the third one was making sure we knew every single move that their counterparts, the Chinese diplomatic team in their particular country, was undertaking, both their diplomatic efforts and their economic efforts. Uh, you can go ask any of them, foreign service officers, politicals, they all knew that the thing we were looking for when they sent back cables was, tell me what the Chinese Communist Party is up to in your country. So the first rule is always, of any, just like any other thing, it's a 12-step program. I have a problem. So we made sure they knew we had a problem, they were working it. Um, there are so many more things that we could do to help them. It's usually economic. Uh, we're not gonna go toe to toe with them, but I'll give you, I'll give you just one example. Uh, and this is a good bipartisan example. Uh, the Chinese um, were about to take over what was the old Subic Bay in the Philippines. Uh, but the deal wasn't done when I became Secretary of State and I said, we're gonna go put a marker down. We're gonna go crush that deal. Uh, day before yesterday, uh, a private equity firm here in the United States closed on the old Subic Bay. Uh, it was a bunch of South Korean debt. We had to renegotiate. It was very complicated. The Department of Defense had to step up and do some work. Uh, but it's pretty remarkable. That, that port, an important, if you just stare at the map and stare at the historic laydown of Subic Bay, and it's a little bit, the port's a little different today. But if you stare at the laydown, that geostrategic footprint to have the Chinese Communist Party owning that asset would have been really, really dangerous to Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, uh, Singapore, Sri Lanka, each of those countries that um, we all know are under coercive threat. So we now have an American private equity firm. God bless them for stepping up and doing it. I um, hope they make a lot of money. That's what winning looks like. Congratulations, <laughs> Mr. Yeah. Secretary. But, but, I, but I meant that in a good sense. Right? Yep, we, did, we, right. we didn't get it closed out on our watch. Yep. This administration came in, mm -hmm. and uh, the ambassador there and the ambassador in another country that was working really hard on this made it all happen. Secretary Mike Pompeo, thanks for your service. Thanks for being with us. Fifty years ago, the Heritage Foundation was created to help conservatives save America from crime, inflation, communist aggression, and cultural decay brought on by left-wing coastal elites. 
The bad news is leftists are screwing it up all over again. This means we're going to have to save America once more. And the good news is we can. Today, heritage is the tip of the spear for America's counteroffensive against the woke socialist left dominating Washington and poisoning our country. We're laying out the facts, leading the debates, and setting the agenda to protect our elections and our border, to rein in big tech and rescue kids from woke schools, and to help Americans rebuild a strong economy and even stronger families. After what we've seen the woke left become in recent years, we know the days of reacting to them are over. From Congress to school boards to kitchen tables, conservatives need to go on offense every day, stay on offense, and win the fight for the next generation. Welcome back, everyone, for our final segment of the show. Joining me to talk more about the growing threat of the Chinese Communist Party and how America should position itself to confront it is our very own Brent Sadler. Brent is a Navy veteran who served for more than 25 years in everything from operational tours on nuclear-powered submarines to working as a military diplomat in Asia. He now serves as Senior Fellow for Naval Warfare and Advanced Technology at the Heritage Foundation Center for National Defense. Brent, thanks for being here. It's great to work with you. Having me. Oh, absolutely. You've been a busy guy. I mean, as our guests, our audience now know, you've been a busy guy for a long time on behalf of American freedom, so thank you. But you in particular have been a busy guy the last few weeks because of everything that's going on in the world, especially in what I imagine is your favorite region of the world, and that's the Far East. Mm. So before we get into some specific questions about some of the details, one of the questions I like to ask our expert guests is give us sort of the kitchen table Mm. answer for people who are tuning in, knowing that Heritage can give them some sense of being able to converse about the topic. What do we need to know about the threat from China and about America's position there? Oh, absolutely. So the the short answer is that this is an all-hands, all-nations challenge, mm-hmm. and, and it does affect us. You may not feel it or recognize it, but the movies you watch, the newspapers, and the websites that you go to, social media, they're all influenced by it. Mm-hmm. And the first thing, kind of like The Matrix, is kind of waking up to the reality that you're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the first thing, is to acknowledge that. And so it's very real, and it's it's all-encompassing. And, it, and it's interesting that a crisis in Eastern Europe has helped us to recognize, and I think across the political spectrum, Mm -hmm. that we see this huge threat from the Chinese Communist Party. And so what I want to do is sort of use that as a pivot point Mm -hmm. to talk about what I think has been largely a well-intentioned experiment Mm -hmm. in American foreign policy. You know that, of course, you can always disagree with me. So tell me if I'm mistaken. But that experiment was in the early 70s, President Nixon trying to triangulate Beijing because we were focused on Moscow with good reason. And presidential administrations, Democrat and Republican alike, sort of continued that. I can say that I certainly thought that the American free market, American virtue would help China become more like America. And all we've Mm -hmm. seen is that China's become more like China. Uh, Absolutely. So in the early 70s, really starts in the late 60s, for very realist reasons Mm -hmm. in the height of the cold, at a very dark part of the Cold War, it made total sense Mm -hmm. to try to play the communist Chinese against the Soviets in Moscow. Uh, It was an unnatural, I think, Secretary Dulles got it right in the mm-hmm. 50s that you just let them get close, they'll actually realize they hate each other. So that's still true to this today. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is by the 70s, the end of the 70s, the Chinese government, Chinese Communist Party was bankrupt mm-hmm. and they needed a, a helping hand. So it worked out for us and them in the end to shift over and open up our, our economic, our economy to them. 
but we didn't really have a clear idea. We mirrored too much our own preconceptions and notions that if they saw the benefits of a prosperous Western way, that they too would join. The reality is it was always about Chinese Communist Party's power mm -hmm. and legitimacy, and they would never allow that change. And so hope is not really a good recipe for success. And unfortunately, for too long, that's what we were banking on. Do you think, just as a quick follow-up question mm. before we get to the, the threat in terms of details that, that China poses to America, do you think that the someone who is watching this, whether they're left of center, right of mm. center, in the center, that it's right for us to say, it's okay for you to have thought that. We're not casting stones. We, we sort of all believe that to some extent or another, but what we have to recognize is now is the moment, moment we have to move on from that, whether we're liberals or conservatives. No, absolutely. It was very healthy, and I thought it was very uh, welcome the response from Secretary Pompeo the other mm -hmm. day when he said exactly that. He's mm -hmm. like, we can't, nor should we focus in on casting stones right. to what someone felt or the opinions that they wrote about two or three years ago or 10 years ago. Uh, many The consensus was, and up until about the mid-2000s, that China was going to eventually join fully and become a, a, I think the word of the day was responsible stakeholder. Most people now, with very few exceptions, have come to that realization mm. that we have to embrace the Chinese Communist Party as it is and have a much more realistic approach of what we can do and what we can, where we can actually partner with them on, which is very limited, right. and also at the same time much more aggressively compete with them uh, effectively. And I, and I think both of those are really important. I mean, after all, America is a republic. So we do want to develop partnerships where we can. That's part of our, thank God, our, our DNA as a people. But I, what I want to home in on is, is sort of lead with the bad news. Mm. And that is the threat that the Chinese Communist Party poses to mm. America. I think one of the things that we lament at Heritage, and, and I, I, this would have to be true for you and your colleagues in foreign policy who are real experts, is that there's a lot of rhetoric about the threat that the CCP poses. But what Heritage and other policy folks can offer is a detailed understanding of what those threats are. So in a mm -hmm. nutshell for our audience, what, what would the list look like? So it's about four different things, mm -hmm. uh, main categories. Uh, it's, it's comprehensive. It's a comprehensive competition. The Chinese have thousands of years of strategic culture that you need to go to study on. I'm not going to go into all that, obviously. But so the first is diplomatic and political. Mm -hmm. So they do play our politics in it. They do play diplomatically in multilateral mm -hmm. fora like UN, ASEAN, in all kinds of nefarious ways. So that's one. And that's been a real heated competition for 20 years plus, mm -hmm. actually. Then there's the economic, which there's lots of writing and lots of awareness of that, failed promises of the WTO mm -hmm. uh, joining or, or welcoming of China, et cetera. Uh, then there is the military, which is very easy to quantify as well as to qualify uh, based on the insights that we have on that. But then I would leave with probably the most sinister and insidious, and kind of I hinted at earlier, and that is the soci societal. Mm -hmm. That's another avenue that they're challenging us in with our, using our own media, right. using our own laws against us. Yeah, I mean, it's we often hear, and you've you've mentioned it in some other appearances that the Chinese are using American freedom, the American free market, to to exploit us. I do, given your experience mm. as a veteran, want to home in on the military capabilities because one of the things we're trying to achieve here at Heritage all the time, but especially this year, is to be specific about the mm. threats. Not to be alarmist, that's not what we're up to, but to be realistic mm -hmm. so that we can guide policymakers in the United States toward a responsible policy that addresses the threat. And I know the people that I talk to a lot are really concerned about the Chinese military. Are they mistaken? No. Um, 
And the analogy that I use, it's a kind of a, you know, if you pardon the sailor's analogies, if you realize you're going to have a collision five miles out, you can throw the rudder over like two degrees and make a slow, or slow down by just a knot. Slow, make a little change. Right. And you'll avoid the collision by a mm-hmm. wide margin. But if you wait, you're going to have to throw the rudder over more aggressively and change your speed. And if you're, you know, you get to just the moment before the collision, you're throwing your engines all back emergency, right. which is like taking your car from 60, 60 miles ahead to reverse and slam it on the, ga- on the gas and try and go ba- backwards right. while you're going forward. So, so we're approaching that point, but we're not at imminent collision if we take appropriate action to meet the Chinese military threat. Right. And so probably people in the audience are detecting, even from heritage, that we're continuing to say what we've always said mm-hmm. in terms of detail, but we have clicked up a notch or two the rhetoric, but rhetoric that is substantiated by real evidence. And that mm-hmm. is, to, to use your wonderful sailor's analogy, that let's start changing course now so that, number one, there isn't mm-hmm. a collision, but number two, we don't have to take such drastic measures that it really begins to affect American lives yes. in, the, in, in the way or our quality of life in the way that we would really see. Absolutely. Better to do it early at lower cost and risk in human life and also capital, yeah. uh, by all means. So aggravating that, you know, <laughs> one of the one of the things we do on this show is to tell you know, all of the bad news mm-hmm. and then we'll conclude with some optimism. But aggravating that is the situation with Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And so also sort of a nutshell question, what is it that our audience needs to know about Taiwan itself, but also how the situation with the, the Taiwanese affects American-Chinese relations. So uh, I'll kind of walk around a little bit. First mm-hmm. is the geography. Sure. Taiwan is a, a link in a chain, the first island chain, which really contra- constrains what the Chinese, their military can do unopposed right. on a day-to-day basis. So you lose that link in the chain, our problems actually magnify and mm-hmm. multiply. So that's the geographic one. Then there's the economic and supply chain part. Uh, There's Mm -hmm. lots of things that we get from Taiwan, but probably the most notable is microprocessors. And there's been efforts in the last, you know, during the Trump administration to address this more aggressively. And I think we may see some of that diminish as Taiwan, people, the companies in Taiwan, like TSMC was mentioned by Secretary Pompeo as well, move to diversify Mm -hmm. their production chain. So there's that. And it's it's more than just microchips. Mm -hmm. And then there is people. There are, there are about 50,000 American citizens living in Taiwan. So if China does do what the Russians are doing in Kiev and Kharkiv and Mariupol, there's going to be American citizens that get killed, and that will be on our TV, and it will become a hot-button political item here very quickly when, it is, it, when the consequences of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan come home. Right, and, and I'm presuming that that isn't fiction. I mean, that's, th- th- there's a real possibility that can happen. Yes, I'm, I'm in that school of thought. Uh, when Secretary Pompeo mm. acknowledged what, what some in, in this town are calling the Davidson window for Admiral Davidson, said that China's making every indication to be prepared for military confrontation with the United States over resolving Taiwan, which is an invasion or it's maybe a little less, right. but still violent and very bloody before 2027. I'm in that school of thought. Yeah, well, and I think if, if our audience has not come to know you yet, <laughs> that by virtue of, of my recitation of your background and your, your comments today, they know to trust you, so thanks. But I want to ask you one final question, Brent, and it's a two-parter. The first is, what will it take for America to defeat the Chinese Communist Party? Mm. And secondly, because I know you're going to give me a straight answer, how optimistic are you that that can happen? So I'll start off with the last part. And, and so I'm very optimistic mm-hmm. if we play all our cards. Okay. We tend to hold our punches 
or pull our punches, and we tend to not play all our cards in our hand when we should. Mm-hmm. When you know, take that early action. So I'm confident that we're we're waking up to the reality, and more importantly, our partners and allies like Japan, who've been dealing with this reality longer than we have, right. and in Australia. Uh, there, there, there's, a, there's a lot there to be told as well, that we have part friends that are also helping us see the light. So I'm confident it's definitely clear that it's a bipartisan. Thankfully, mm-hmm. politics here won't get in the way, hopefully, of taking action. But it's going to come with a bill. We have to be prepared to pay more for defense than we have in the last 30 years. The peace dividend now needs to be taken out of the bank and put into investments in our military. And while I'm a Navy guy and I think it should be a lot of Navy, it's not just Navy. It's right. all of the above. Yeah. Well, an excellent analysis. I'd sit here and talk to you for a couple hours, but I need to let you get back to work. And I want just want to conclude, Brent, by thanking you for your service to Heritage, service to this country, and look forward to working with you for many years. Thank you very much, Dr. You Roberts. bet. Well, that's going to wrap up things for this week's show. I want to thank again my guest, former CIA Director and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Heritage Senior Fellow Brent Sadler. Please remember to subscribe to The Kevin Roberts Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And give the show a five-star rating while you're at it. And please be sure to tell a friend. Our movement is for everybody. All are welcome. And the way to ensure that our government lives by the same principles that we do is to make our movement bigger and give it an even louder voice. Take care, and I'll see you back here next week. (music) 